the case study of Eugene Pauli, brought to you by Clueless. It was the fall of 1993. A man who would overturn much of what we know about habits walked into a laboratory in San Diego for a scheduled appointment. He was elderly, a shade over six feet tall, and neatly dressed in a blue button-down shirt. His thick white hair would have inspired envy at any 50th high school reunion. Arthritis caused him to limp slightly as he paced the laboratory hallways and held onto his wife's hand, walking slowly as if unsure about what each new step would bring. About a year earlier, Eugene Pauli, or EP as he would become known in medical literature, had been at home in Playa del Rey preparing for dinner when his wife mentioned that their son, Michael, was coming over. Who's Michael? Eugene asked. Your child? said Beverly. You know, the one we raised? Eugene looked at her blankly. Who is that? he asked. The next day, Eugene started vomiting and writhing with stomach cramps. Within 24 hours, his dehydration was so pronounced that a panicked Beverly took him to the emergency room. His temperature started rising, hitting 50 degrees Celsius as he sweated a yellow halo of perspiration onto the hospital sheets. He became delirious, then violent, yelling and pushing when the nurses tried to insert an IV into his arm. Only after sedation was a physician able to slide a long needle between the two vibratra in the back of his small of his back and extract a few drops of cerebrospinal fluid. The doctor performing the procedure sensed trouble immediately. The fluid surrounding the brain and spinal nerves is a barrier against infection and injury. In healthy individuals, it's clear and quick-flowing, moving with an almost silky rush through a needle. The sample from Eugene's spine was cloudy and dripped out sluggishly, as if filled with microscopic grit. When the results came back from the laboratory, Eugene's physicians learned that why he was ill. He was suffering from viral encephalitis, a disease caused by a relatively harmless virus that produces cold sores, fever blisters and mild infections on the skin. Although in rare cases the virus can make its way into the brain, inflicting catastrophic damage as it chews through the delicate folds of tissue where thoughts, dreams and, according to some, souls reside. Eugene's doctors told Beverly there was nothing they could do to counter the damage already done, but a large dose of antiviral drugs might prevent it from spreading. Eugene slipped into a coma and for 10 days was close to death. Gradually, as the drug fought the disease, his fever receded and the virus disappeared. When he finally awoke, he was weak, disoriented and couldn't swallow properly. He couldn't form sentences and would sometimes gasp as if he had momentarily forgotten how to breathe, but he was alive. Eventually, Eugene was well enough for a battery of tests. The doctors were amazed to find that his body, including his nervous system, appeared largely unscathed. He could move his limbs and was responsive to noise and light. Scans of his head, although, revealed ominous shadows near the centre of his brain. The virus had destroyed an oval of tissue close to where his cranium and spinal column met. He might not be the person you remember, one doctor warned Beverly. You need to be ready if your husband is gone. Eugene was moved to a different wing of the hospital, 
Within the week, he was swallowing easily. Another week, he started talking normally, asking for jello and salt, flipping through the television channels and complaining about boring soap operas. By the end of the week, he was discharged to a rehabilitation centre five weeks and five weeks later. Eugene was walking down hallways and offering nurses unsolicited advice about their weekend plans. I don't think I've ever seen anyone come back like this, a doctor told Beverly. I don't want to raise your hopes, but this is amazing. Beverly, however, remained concerned. The rehabilitation hospital, it became clear that the disease had changed her husband in unsettling ways. Eugene couldn't remember which day of the week it was for instance, or the name of his doctors and nurses. No matter how many times they kept introducing themselves, he could not remember. Why do they keep asking me all these questions? Eugene asked Beverly one day after a physician left his room. When he finally returned home, things got even stranger. Eugene didn't remember their friends. He had trouble following conversations. Some mornings he would get out of bed, walk into the kitchen, cook himself bacon and eggs, then climb back under the covers and turn on the radio. Forty minutes later, he would do the same thing, get up, cook bacon and eggs, climb back into bed and fiddle with the radio. Then he would do it again. Alarmed, Beverly reached out to specialists, including a researcher at the University of California, San Diego, who specialized in memory loss which is how on a sunny fall day Beverly and Eugene found themselves in a boring building at the university campus holding hands as they walked down a hallway they were shown into a small exam room where Eugene started chatting with a young woman who was using a computer having been in electronics over the years I'm amazed at all this, he said, gesturing at the machine she was typing on. When I was younger, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks taking up the whole room. The woman continued pecking at the keyboard. Eugene chuckled. That is incredible, he repeated. All those printed circuit boards, diodes and triodes. When I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding up that thing. A scientist entered the room and introduced himself. He asked how Eugene was and how old he was. Oh, let's see, 59 or 60, Eugene replied. He was 71 years old. The scientist started typing on the computer. Eugene smiled and pointed at it. That is really something, he said. You know, when I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding up that thing. The scientist was 52, Larry Squire, a professor who had spent the last three decades studying how the numeratonomy of memory worked. His speciality was exploring how the brain stored events. His work with Eugene, although, would open a new world to him and hundreds of other researchers who have reshaped our understanding of how habits function. Squire studies show that even someone who can't remember his own age or anything else can develop habits that seem inconceivably complex. 
until you realize that everyone relies on similar neurological processes every day. His and others' research would help reveal subconscious mechanisms that impact the countless choices that seem as if they're products of well-reasoned thought, but are actually influenced by urges of most of us that barely recognize or understand. By the time Squire met Eugene, he was already studying the images of Eugene's brain for weeks. The scans indicated that almost all the damage within Eugene's skull was limited to a 5 centre area near the centre of his head. The virus had almost destroyed this medical temporal lobe, a silver of cells which scientists suspected was reasonable for all sorts of cognitive tasks such as recall of the past and regulation of some emotions. The completeness of destruction didn't surprise, surprise Squire. Viral encephalitis consumes tissue with a rootless, almost surgical precision. What shocked him, however, was how familiar these images seemed. Thirty years earlier, a PhD student at MIT, Squire had worked alongside a group of studying a man known as H.M., one of the most famous patients in medical history. When H.M., his real name was Henry Mollison, the scientist shrouded his identity throughout life. He was seven years old when he was hit by a bicycle and landed hard on his head. Soon afterward, he developed seizures and started blacking out. At 16, he had his first grand mal seizure, the kind that infects the entire brain. Soon he was losing consciousness up to 10 times a day. By the time he turned 27, HM was desperate. Anticonvulsive drugs hasn't helped. He was smart, but he couldn't hold a job. He still lived with his parents. HM wanted a normal existence so he sought help from a physician whose tolerance for experimentation outweighed his fear of malpractice. Studies had suggested that an area of the brain called the hippocampus might play a role in seizures when the doctor proposed cutting into HM's head, lifting up the front portion of his brain, and with a small straw sucking out the hippocampus and some surrounding tissue from the interior of his skull, H.M. gave his consent. The surgery occurred in 1953. As H.M. healed, his seizures slowed. Almost immediately, however, it became clear that his brain had been radically altered. H.M. knew that his name and his mother were from Ireland. He could remember the 1929 stock market crash and news reports about the invasion of Normandy, but almost everything that came afterward, all the memories, experience, struggles from most of the decade before his surgery had all been erased. When a doctor began testing HM's memory by showing him playing cards and lists of numbers, he discovered that HM couldn't retain any new information for more than 20 seconds or so. From the day of his surgery until his death in 2008, 
Every person H.M. met, every song he heard, every room he entered was a completely fresh experience. His brain was frozen in time. Each day he was befuddled by the fact that someone could change the television channel by pointing a black rectangle of plastic at the screen. He introduced himself to doctors and nurses over and over and over, dozens of times each day. I loved learning about HM because memory seems like such a tangible, exciting way to study the brain, Squire told me. I grew up in Ohio and I can remember in the first grade my teacher handing everyone crayons and I started mixing all the colours together to see if it would make black. Why I had kept such a memory but I can't remember what my teacher looked like, why my brain decided that one memory is important than another. When Skye received images of Eugene's brain, he marvelled how similar it was to HM's. There were empty, walnut-sized chunks in the middle of both their heads. Eugene's memory, just like HM's, had been removed. As Squire began examining Eugene, though he saw that this patient was different from HM in some profound ways, whereas almost everyone knew within minutes of meeting HM that something was amiss. Eugene could carry on conversations and perform tasks that wouldn't alert casual observer that anything was wrong. The effects on HM's surgery had been so debilitating that he was so institutionalised for the remainder of his life. Eugene, on the other hand, lived with his wife. HM couldn't carry on conversation. Eugene, in contrast, had an amazing knack for guiding almost any discussion to a topic he was comfortable talking about at length, such as satellites. He had worked as a technician for an aerospace company, or the weather. Squire started his exam of Eugene, asking him about his youth. Eugene talked about the town where he had grown up in central California, his time as a merchant marines, the trip he had taken to Australia as a young man. He could remember most of the events in his life that had occurred before in 1960. When Squire asked about later decades, Eugene politely changed the topic and said he had some trouble recollecting some recent events. Squire conducted a few tests and found that Eugene was intellect was sharp for a man who couldn't remember the last three decades. What more, Eugene still had all the habits he had formed in his youth, so whenever Squire came up him a cup of water or complimented him on a particularly detailed answer, Eugene would thank him and offer a compliment in return. Whenever someone entered the room, Eugene would introduce himself and ask about their day. But when Squire asked Eugene to memorize a string of numbers or describe the hallway outside the laboratory door, the doctor found his patient couldn't retain any new information for more than a minute or so. When someone showed Eugene photos of his grandchildren, he had no idea who they were. When Squire asked if he remembered getting sick, Eugene said he had no recollection of his illness or the hospital stay. In fact, Eugene almost never recalled that he was suffering from amnesia. His mental image of himself didn't include memory loss. 
and since he couldn't remember the injury, he couldn't conceive of anything being wrong. In the months after meeting Eugene, Squire conducted experiments that tested the limits of his memory. By then, Eugene and Beverly had moved from Playa del Rey to San Diego to be closer to their daughter, and Squire often visited their home for their exams. One day, Squire asked Eugene to sketch a layout of the house. Eugene couldn't draw a rudimentary map showing where the kitchen or bedroom was located. When you get out of bed in the morning, how do you leave the room? Squire asked. You know, Eugene said, I'm not really sure. Squire took some notes on his laptop and the scientist typed. Eugene became distracted. He glanced across the room and then stood up, walked into a hallway and opened the door to the bathroom. A few minutes later, the toilet flushed, the faucet rang, and Eugene, wiping his hands on his pants, walked back to the living room and sat down again in his chair next to Squire. He waited patiently for the next question. At the time of this, no one wondered how a man couldn't draw a map of his own home, but was able to find the bathroom without hesitation. But that question, and others like it, would eventually lead to a trail of discoveries that transformed our understanding of habit's powers, and it would help spark a scientific revolution that today involves hundreds of researchers who are learning for the first time how to understand the habits that influence our lives. That is part one of the case study of Eugene Pauley.